0: you're listening to the feed
1: this is the feed
0: this is the feed the feed you're listening to the feed in markham in richmond hill you're listening to the feed in Vaughan.
1: in
2: stoville in woodbridge in Unionville. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Ann Romer with York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Coming up, the U.S. election is days away. So what do the results mean to Canada? And are snow pods the answer to winter outdoor dining? But first, the effects of the prolonged pandemic are being felt in so many ways in every corner of this province. Taking a beating, small businesses, they are struggling to survive, particularly those in the hot zones. Boarded up windows and for lease signs are sadly becoming a common sight, proof of the devastating impact that COVID-19 is having on local economies, normally the source of support for small businesses. Joining us now on the feed is Rocco Rossi, president and CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. Thank you for being with us today.
3: A great pleasure always, uh, and Thank you for having me.
2: So you spent a uh, part of last week meeting with other Chambers of Commerce at the Canadian Chambers of Commerce Annual General Meeting. Anything come out of that that will give us some room for hope, some optimism?
3: Well, it's always amazing to get together um, with uh, my colleagues, A, Uh, to hear stories of incredible creativity and entrepreneurship, Uh, B, uh, to share strategies around policies that we're pushing uh, for, and C, to see the the energy of collaboration and cooperation, which has been a hallmark of dealing with this crisis and is going to be critical to getting beyond it.
2: You know, if we look at province by province and the representation from Chambers of Commerce, each province is dealing with a different level of COVID-19. Does that have an impact on some of the ideas and plans that are coming out of the AGM?
3: Without a doubt, uh, there are big differences, but there are many things uh, in common, the need to support local and sharing um, learnings around around local campaigns, buy local, dine local. Uh, the recent success of the Canada United campaign and expansion of uh, the relief grant uh, program very much uh, on uh, on display, uh, and also thinking about things like reducing the interprovincial barriers because we, in fact, have freer trade with many countries outside of Canada than we do within, and that's simply um, uh, something that uh, we can no longer afford.
2: I am no financial whiz. I'm not an economist, but it boils down to small businesses having product to offer and the ability or lack thereof of consumers to purchase
3: well, no question that uh, you have to um, have demand, um, and people have to have confidence to do business. So businesses have been doing their utmost uh, in creating safe and secure environments. People are still buying, and thanks to incredible numbers of government programs, there's still significant money in the economy, but a lot has gone to online, a lot has um, been held back and sort of pent-up uh, demand. So the key is surviving, keeping uh, heads above water, and for the consumers to do what they can with their financial means uh, to support their local businesses, to 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 buy uh, things that can be takeout and delivery, um, to purchase gift certificates, to continue – to show the love to local in the way that uh, business is there for our local communities each and every day.
2: Is that enough to help keep a business alive? Every
3: little bit helps. The sad reality is we've already lost thousands of businesses across this country. We will lose more because we're by no means out of the woods uh, yet and until there's a widely available uh, vaccine. We're going to be living with this um with this uh, crisis and living with the uh, with the virus but every little bit helps so it makes a difference if you buy local if you support local whenever and wherever you can
2: how important is small business how important are they to local economies and to really the overall ontario economy
3: it's just enormous. I mean, 90% of the new jobs created in the last couple of years came from small and mid-sized businesses. Everybody has a story of where they got their uh, their first job, where they buy uh, that special celebratory uh, meal, that special gift, uh, where they had their first date. Uh, but it's not simply about goods and services. Small businesses are the heart of our community, the heart of our Main Street uh, culture, the contributors to local charities. And so it it is an enormous contributor both to the economy and to our society. And we need to keep as many of them alive so that we can rebuild at the end of this as we will.
2: Moving to digital moving online and many small businesses have been encouraged to, to do that but at a certain point you know you think about main street and the doors opening and a mom and pop small business so much of that the kindness and the gentleness and the and the the storied history of a of a shop it's lost once you go online well, what
3: we're seeing are incredible model, models of so-called bricks and clicks. Yes, there are some things that uh, you can do the entire transaction online and uh, never encounter someone, but uh, the reality is that that combination, much more difficult now, obviously, in the current circumstances, but over time, providing high levels of service, providing unique experiences for people and providing both that touch and the ease of online uh, purchasing and information gathering is really what we're seeing as a winning formula in so many businesses.
2: Small town, small city, small business versus big city, small business. Does it put a small business at an advantage or a disadvantage to be housed within a big city?
3: Well, it's both, quite frankly. Uh, You can see it, for instance, in a place like downtown Toronto, and there are lots of small businesses in the path underneath all of the big office towers. And because the office towers are largely empty because you can't move enough people and keep physical distance up uh, elevators, the foot traffic for those small businesses down in the past is a fraction of what it normally is. And there being in a big city is actually a huge disadvantage for a small business. But in other places where you have standalone um, small businesses in communities that have built strong local followings, having that larger market to draw upon is a positive. So, it's pluses and minuses, and what we're seeing each and every day is the inventiveness, the creativity of businesses to, to keep on
4: keeping on.
2: Let's focus on York Region, if you would. And it is, a, it is unique because of so many contributions from bigger cities and towns. It, it, it's just quite unique that it is all together, and yet there are big problems when it comes to small businesses in York Region.
3: No question as you as you say york region is a is a microcosm of the entire economy because you 've got everything from agriculture to banking and everything in between you 've got uh, large office towers and you have small picturesque main streets in uh, in small towns and what i 'm seeing and what um, always impresses me in in York region, is incredible collaboration at at all levels, local government, the provincial government, federal government working together, um, stepping up, providing support. Yes, we've got to do more. This has been a real-time public policy creation exercise because typically governments are designed to move very slowly, and COVID has said, That ain't gonna work. That's not gonna cut it. You have to, you have to move. And so you see tremendous partnerships, uh, being built up and, you know, some of our most dynamic chambers of commerce and boards of trade are right there in New York region from, from Vaughan to Newmarket to to everything in between.
2: Some people are very frightened of the second wave of COVID-19, and it is hampering their ability and their desire to get out and shop local. What do you say to that?
3: Well, businesses are doing everything in their power to keep uh, circumstances as safe as possible within uh, the public health requirements. There are a number of things all of us need to be doing on a personal level as well to enhance uh, that experience. One is Really the, the, the use of masks, physical distancing, absolutely critical. I encourage all of your listeners to download the COVID Alert tracking and tracing app onto their smartphones. This is going to help frontline healthcare workers contain uh, any spread. I want to encourage everyone to book and get their flu shot this year so that we reduce the volume of cases faced by our frontline healthcare workers and also reduce the potential confusion for schools, for businesses, um, and for communities. And if we all continue to do our part, um, then we can continue to uh, have a, a, a somewhat open economy. And government also has to continue to step up, not just with financial supports, but quite frankly, we need to do much, much more when it comes to testing, tracking, and and tracing. We simply have to be able to do more rapid testing. The notion that you have to wait days um, to book a test and then to get the results is just not going to uh, cut it. If we get rapid and massive testing, then we're able to contain and mitigate risk more and keep more of the economy open going forward.
2: And the big V word, vaccine, how does that factor into the future of business, of our economy, and particularly small businesses in Ontario?
3: No question that that is something that many uh, consumers and employees and governments and businesses are waiting for to really give a a greater sense of confidence because we know absent that there is no zero risk way to open the economy and to keep it open. Uh so it is it is critical and everything we're hearing from the experts there are encouraging signs but you know we're we're talking about it still being months away, not weeks away.
2: The Ontario Chamber of Commerce, bottom line, your bottom line, is there room for optimism for small businesses in Ontario right now?
3: Businesses and business people, entrepreneurs, are by their very nature optimists Um, because you simply would not put your life savings at risk, uh, you know, borrow up to your eyeballs, you know, borrow from friends and family if you weren't optimistic, if you weren't a believer in your skills, your abilities, and those of your team. And so that always gives me optimism. Two, the level of cooperation and collaboration um, across levels of government, across party lines, also gives me um, room uh, for optimism. And, And third, when we, as difficult as the circumstances are, when we look around uh, the world, we see that uh, we're doing so much better than so many and and have so many things uh, for which we should be grateful and are grateful, and that, again, gives me hope and optimism for the future.
2: Rocco, what is your best advice right now to owners of small businesses who are listening to the feed?
3: One, you have to continue to do everything possible in your power to improve the confidence of your employees and uh, and your uh, customers. You need to be keeping things clean in a way that, uh, you would demand for your own children and your own parents and your own loved ones. That's, that's number one. Number two, there are significant programs of assistance and one that we've just, uh, added, we've announced thanks to incredible generous partners in Canada United on the private side led by RBC and now the federal government we have at the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, we're managing this on a national basis, $14 million to provide grants of up to $5,000 and these are grants not loans they're not repayable this goes right into your uh, into your pocket to help pay for PPE to help pay for further digitization of your business to help pay for doing those renovations putting up the plexiglass etc to make things safe please go to gocanadaunited.ca um and apply we want to uh, give as many of those out before the, the the money runs out, and we'll continue to work to find other things and work with your local chambers of commerce, boards of trade. We are stronger together. The voices are much stronger together, and governments are listening when we bring that unified voice to the table.
2: It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Rocco Rossi, President and CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, thank you so much for joining us on the feed.
3: Thanks for having me, and as always, stay positive and test negative.
2: Since the pandemic took hold, online business has been booming. Jim Lang with what it means to the brick-and-mortar stores.
1: Well, it goes without saying, that's holiday season for all of us, not just in Canada, but across North America, it will be very different because of COVID-19. And that means different holiday shopping ideas and maybe different holiday shopping habits. So talk more about it. Thrilled to be speaking to Marty Weintraub from Deloitte. Uh, Marty, how are you? Um, Great, thank you. Good morning. Well, here's, here's I guess, my concern as a parent. My wife and I have two teenage daughters who used to like to go to the mall all the time. And even they are concerned about going to the mall too much and are turning to online shopping, notably Amazon. Is that something we're going to see more of as Canadians as we get closer to mid-November, early December? Yes,
5: uh, it is. In fact, uh, in our holiday study that we just completed over the last couple of weeks, uh, for the first time ever, Amazon has now officially uh, taken over the top spot for the number one destination that two-thirds of Canadians will be starting their shopping journey on and most likely making a purchase on as well. So the store, which was number one in previous years, is now sort of number two or number three behind Amazon.
1: So for, I guess, the trickle-down effect, what happens to the malls? There are so many malls in Canada, especially in winter, that rely on crowds of people going from store to store and maybe seeing something they didn't realize and buying it there. What happens to them over the holiday season?
5: Yeah, it's it's going to be a bit of a mixed news situation. I mean, we've seen mall traffic quite frankly deteriorating quickly even before the pandemic, quite frankly. Um, Obviously, that got accelerated with the fear of health and safety concerns. Right now, only about 55% of Canadians feel comfortable going out to a physical store. So for enclosed malls, it does spell trouble. Now, there will be some retailers that have hot and in-demand products that people will still go to malls for, but they will do so more carefully and look to get in and out quickly and shop at retailers that make them feel safe.
1: Now, I I know part of your study is it looks like Canadians will spend a little less on average than they do usual years. Is that something across the board?
5: Yeah, we do uh, exactly that. We're seeing about an 18% reduction in total holiday spend here in 2020. Uh, that's about uh, $1,400, uh, down from $1,700 last year. There's actually an even more pronounced effect in some geographies with, you know, out in the West, that number going down 25%. Um, here in Ontario, uh, we're probably hovering around the 18, but it's a bit mixed, but unfortunately materially
1: less than last year. Speaking with Marty Weintraub from Deloitte about uh, Canadian shopping habits as we get ready and start thinking about the holidays in a big way. And here's what I've been finding about the online shopping craze because of the COVID pandemic, uh, pandemic Marty, and especially Amazon. We have a ne- a neighbors, they're retired. They're getting stuff delivered two or three times a week. My dad's 80 in a retirement home. He's getting stuff. It doesn't matter what age you are, people are enjoying online shopping.
5: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we are seeing, you know, some slight differences across certain socio-demographic groups. You're right. I mean, there used to be a time when uh, age sort of, quote-unquote, mattered in terms of adoption of e-commerce, but those days are slipping behind us very quickly.
1: Now, as Canadians, uh, is this a trend that's going to continue post-pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, what we've seen certainly over the past few months
5: is uh, a strong relationship with, you know, continued concern over health and safety, continued concern over the economic and financial position outlook on behalf of Canadian. The longer that continues, the more likely these new behaviors will cement. Um, we're already seeing some of that, quote-unquote, cemented, like the move towards online Um, the move towards more digital engagement, um, the move towards more spending on health and wellness and your home away from some other more discretionary categories. So some of those behaviors are already cemented, and others will become even more cemented the longer this drones on.
1: And I guess I guess as this continues, people will be looking more and more to do more online shopping. And I wonder about the future of some of these brick-and-mortar stores, if they'll be smaller in the future and really push online and have a smaller in-store capacity. Yeah,
5: we'll see that happen. Now, by the way, having said everything we just said, I would temper it with it'll happen over time and over quite a pronounced time. Um, you know, the store is not dead. Certainly, there are challenges, like I said, depending on where your real estate is, enclosed, outdoors. So, we'll see a repositioning, for sure, of physical assets. That could mean, in some cases, smaller physical footprints or stores. Uh, in other uh, cases, it'll just mean absolutely fewer stores because, you know, we just don't need as much capacity on the brick-and-mortar side. So, a restructuring of physical retail is absolutely underway, has been accelerated by the pandemic, and will continue after it.
1: I know uh, just recently at Thanksgiving, I have some family members in Nova Scotia, and we were, you know, you know, FaceTiming with them on the holiday as we shared the holiday. And it's funny, your study showed over 51% of Canadians are opting to avoid in-home entertaining. And I guess as we get towards the holiday season and Christmas and New Year's, there'll be a lot more of that as well.
5: Yeah, we're going to see exactly that. I mean, we talked about that $1,400 sort of spend on the holiday. A large chunk of that pullback is going to be in travel And then entertainment and entertaining, right? No surprise. People have fewer people at their homes, likely may have nobody at their homes in some cases, so there will be less spend on that um but uh the other thing is there's no going out to eat so that's offset a little bit by more you know grocery shopping and cooking at home but all in all it will be a more tempered holiday season as it relates to gatherings is is our estimate
1: i know my wife and i are always concerned about the the local small business people especially run eateries and diners and family-run restaurants and we try to get takeout whenever possible is it is there a way to get the word out for people at least once a week to get some takeout to support these businesses
5: uh, yeah, I mean, I guess the quick answer is, of course, there's ways, and we're seeing some of that happen already today, either through, you know, the news, the traditional news, or even through social media. I think the challenge is that there's so much capacity in that sort of system of the variations of dine-in, dine-out, uh, order online, have delivered to your, you know, to your home, that... They're just – the demand is down. So, there's, there unfortunately, is probably too much capacity, certainly in the short term. And, again, like I said, the longer the stone's on, the more challenging it will be for those smaller local establishments to sort of stay alive. Um, so, I guess, unfortunately, the time is ticking. And, um, yeah, it does still – tough times ahead. There's no fair hands
1: about it. Sorry about that. But Martin, I'm just curious. From a personal standpoint, I know I found – as a middle-aged, you know, husband and, and parent, I'm enjoying doing the virtual shopping online. I, how are you, do you do more of it now?
5: Yeah, I do. now. I'm, I'm a little bit of a, of a, you know, closet online shopper. That's I've been for some time, probably more because of my job. But I'll, I'll agree with that for sure. Even someone who does this for a living, uh, I've even gravitated more towards online. And I thought I was a pretty avid online shopper before. But, you know, it's amazing what happens to the human mind when you have no choice. <laughs> when choices are removed, you know, from your decisions, that it's amazing how fast we change. I think is really the net new lesson that I personally learned as well as many Canadians.
1: You know, Marty, it's amazing. In our neighborhood, which is a typical suburban middle class neighborhood in Canada, we see the, the those rental vans that people are driving for Amazon delivery like every day, like every day, sometimes on Saturday too. Yeah. Yep, and
5: it's funny, you know, delivery capacity is another. So we talk about some of the sort of negative news out of all this. Some of the positive news is there's a lot of new opportunities and jobs and roles coming up to service, quote-unquote, that last mile. By the way, not just Amazon, but every retail operation and or food delivery service needs that sort of last mile delivery capability. So we're going to see, we are seeing, and we'll continue to see a restructuring of that whole sort of ecosystem of delivery.
1: Outstanding. Marty Weintraub from Deloitte, thank you so much for your insight and all the best. Take care. My pleasure. Take care.
2: When we come back, Americans are going to the polls what the results will mean for this country. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region.
5: Do you have a story idea for The Feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of The Feed coming up. This is 105.9 The Region.
2: Welcome back to The Feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Ann Romer. The U.S. election may be too close to call, but whatever happens on Tuesday, it will have an impact right here at home. Afwa Ba with that story.
6: We are just a few days away from the 2020 U.S. election, and the next president that will be elected will have to tackle some major obstacles that's right now hurting the nation. And some of those obstacles include, of course, the COVID-19 pandemic, a gaping racial divide, and an economy on thin ice. So joining me today to talk about what we can expect for this upcoming election in the U.S., Associate Professor in the Department of Politics at York University, Stephen Newman. Professor Newman, thank you so much for your time today.
4: Oh, happy to be here.
6: Wonderful. Okay, so a lot of people are, of course, watching very closely this upcoming election for one reason or another. Uh, Let's first start off by looking at the polls. What are we seeing right now in the polls?
4: All right, well, the polls have for quite a while now favored Joe Biden, but the margin that he has is not so great that the election is a foregone conclusion. Um, His national lead is something like 10%. And in the battleground states, the all-important battleground states, it ranges from, say, 8% in Michigan to something like 1% or 2% in Arizona.
6: Wow, okay, so it's still quite a tight race. And we're already seeing that early voting has already surpassed 2016. What does that mean about the current political climate in the U.S.?
4: (laughs) I mean, it's absolutely amazing. I read some 66 million people have already voted. I mean, that is far and away greater than in any previous election, much greater than in 2016. And the experts who actually track these things tell us that we're likely to see the largest turnout in an American election since the early days of the 20th century. It's going to be massive. What this tells us is that there's a lot of interest in this election, We also know that the electorate is highly polarized. There are Trump people, there are Biden people, and the outcome of the election is probably going to turn on which side gets their voters to turn out, or more than the other.
6: Now we know that we're in the final sort of stretch of uh, campaigning for both parties. So what final strategies do you think both parties are using to secure votes right now?
4: Well, I think you're going to see them doing more of what they've already been doing. All right, uh, President Trump, quite surprisingly, has been playing to his base. I mean, everyone expected him to try to broaden his appeal. Uh, he's got the support, the unwavering support, of between 40 and 43 percent of the electorate. But throughout this campaign, he has been playing to his base, hitting the themes that resonate with the base, uh, he's been predicting the breakdown of law and order were Biden to be elected. He's been denigrating Biden's mental acuity, criticizing Biden's record as a career politician, and of course predicting widespread fraud at the polls. For his part, Joe Biden has been hammering away at Trump's mishandling of the pandemic and calling for a return to decency after four years of Trump's inflammatory tweets and divisive rhetoric. Um, this is going to be the themes that uh, dominate right to election day.
6: We're seeing though, rough estimates shows there's about 5% that's still considered undecided. So will those who are undecided make up their minds by voting day? And then if not, how much will that impact results?
4: Undecided votes matter. There's no question about that. They matter a lot when elections are close. And this election could be close. I mean, the weird thing is, this could be a blowout for Biden. Uh, In the electoral college, right? Um, On the other hand, it could be a cliffhanger, and we might not know the results on election night. In fact, we probably won't know the results on election night. It may take days or weeks to count the mail-in ballots that are expected. We are expecting not only have we seen this huge number of people voting ahead of the election, early voting, we are also expecting to see the greatest number of write-in ballots in perhaps forever. And it takes time to count those mail-in ballots. Uh, many states, in fact most states, have laws that forbid uh, county officials, local officials, to start counting those ballots until election day. So we might know, not know what's going to happen until, well, like I said, days or weeks later. Now the undecided, even though it's just a small percentage, you said 5%, probably right. The margin between Trump and Biden in so many of these battleground states is about 5% or less. So, yeah, they matter a lot.
6: I want to ask you, though, about the millennial vote. We know that that was supposed to be quite important during the 2016 elections with uh, Hillary Clinton, but we realized that the millennial vote did not come out as strong as they were expecting. And so for 2020, any indication if the millennial vote will make an impact?
4: Well, we're looking at demographics here, and if you just look at the numbers, the number of people who are in the millennial generation and Generation Z, okay? For the first time, the statisticians tell us, we're going to have as many people in those categories as we do in the baby boom category eligible to go to the polls. And in, in, in 2024, the, the sheer number of people in the millennial generation and Generation Z will actually outnumber the baby boomers. Now, in point of fact, the younger voters don't turn out as heavily as the older voters. And the people who study these things tell us that even in this election, it is not expected that millennials and Generation Z voters will you know, turn out in as great numbers as older voters. But a lot of them are planning to vote this time. And that will probably make a difference in the sense that most younger voters – Tend to be Democrats rather than Republicans. They tend to favor the Democrats rather than the Republicans. So, to the degree that they do turn out, if there is a heavier than expected turnout among the Millennials and Generation Z, it will probably benefit Biden. But again, their real power will be manifest in 2024 and afterward because the demographics. All on their side.
6: I want to turn over to another important uh, issue here, debates. I'm pretty sure a lot of people saw it. Even if they didn't, I'm sure they heard a lot about the debates that happened this year. Did it make any impact? My own guess is that the debates probably didn't really win over uh, many people,
4: and that's because the country is so heavily polarized. I mean, most people had made up their mind long before the debates took place. So I think the main function of the debates was probably to energize each candidate's base. You know, it's like you go to the game to root for your side, right? Uh, like, you know, you, the previous question, like 5% of the voters undecided. There aren't that many people to win over, right? So the debates, I think, were primarily about energizing your side, and they were also a bit of a test, right? Will Trump try to make an effort to win over people who aren't part of his base? Well, he didn't. Will Biden? You know, be able to to stand up to the rigors of the debate. Trump has been saying he doesn't have the energy, he doesn't have the mental acuity, but Biden acquitted himself well. So generally, I think it's a bit of a wash.
6: We're going to get a little bit technical here, and we know that we hear this uh, term thrown out a lot amongst political pundits. We hear it here in Canada, but I don't maybe think we understand to an extent how much uh, of an impact it makes. Battleground states, how key will that be to securing either another win for President Trump or win for Biden?
4: Well, the battleground states will decide the election. Um, Most states, in U.S. elections, most states tend to be safe, I mean, electorally speaking, right, and, and they, they vote for one party or for the other in the, in the national elections. And so we get the talk of red states and blue states, which you can't avoid hearing if you listen to the news. A minority of the states are considered swing states, meaning that they do not favor one party or the other consistently in presidential elections. Michigan and Pennsylvania were considered blue states going into the 2016 election. But Trump won them both by very slim margins. The top battlegrounds this year are Florida, Pennsylvania, Michigan, uh, Wisconsin, pardon me, North Carolina, and Arizona. Biden currently leads in all six, although, as I've said, his margin is relatively slim in most places. Michigan alone is like 8% up. That's That's pretty solid.
6: We've heard that the popular vote doesn't really mean anything in terms of voting on that day, that it's all about the electoral college. Can you explain how their system works? Um, the
4: Electoral College is probably inexplicable, even to Americans, but I will try. (laughs) Even a lot of Americans don't realize that the U.S. Constitution provides for the indirect election of the president, right? So everybody goes to the polls, and when you go to the polls, I'm an American, so I voted already. I voted in the state of Wisconsin. And the ballot I got had, you know, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and and, 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 uh, Donald Trump and, 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 and Pence. But in fact, I wasn't voting for those people. I, um... The actual election is is conducted in in, in what's called the Electoral College. And presidential electors, the people who sit in the Electoral College, are chosen by the states. Now, all the states today do this by popular election, although the Constitution does not require that they do so. In fact, the state legislature could select the state's electors without consulting the people. Voters cast their ballots for either Biden or Trump. But, like me, when I voted in Wisconsin, they will actually be electing a slate of presidential electors chosen by the two parties. And so, if, say, Biden wins in a given state, then the slate of electors put up by the Democrats in that state will be the ones to cast votes in the Electoral College. Now, most states award all of their Electoral College votes to the candidate who wins the popular vote, even if that candidate claims a plurality of the vote rather than an outright majority. Two states, Maine and Nebraska, divide their electoral college vote, giving two to the candidate who wins statewide and one to the winner in each of the state's congressional districts. The number of electors allocated to each state is determined by adding together the number of seats a state has in the U.S. House of Representatives and its two seats in the Senate. And so, for example, Wisconsin, where I vote, currently has eight seats in the House and, of course, two senators, like all states, for a total of ten representatives in Congress. This means that the state has allocated ten presidential electors. And it takes a simple majority of the vote in the Electoral College to win. The magic number is 270, a curious feature of the Electoral College is that electors are not commanded by the Constitution to cast their ballots in favor of the popular vote winner in their state. They can, in fact, vote for whomever they want. <laughs> this <laughs> happens more than you would think, where you get what are called faithless electors. So they win in a the state, they're pledged to Donald Trump, but instead they decide to write in their grandmother.
0: <laughs> wow. There
4: is nothing in the Constitution that prevents them from doing this. Now, many states have passed laws. That require the electors to vote for the candidate to whom they are pledged. But these laws have never been tested in court, and the Constitution does not itself specify that electors (laughs) must do so. Um, It's like I said. It's a crazy
6: system. If you're just tuning into the feed, we are speaking with Associate Professor from the Department of Politics at York University, Stephen Newman. We're chatting about what we can expect in next week's U.S. elections, the race to the White House. Professor Newman, let me just say, I think I have to give you major credit right now. The (laughs) fact that you broke it down that way, to be honest, I'm probably going to listen back to this chat just to really soak it in. It's really (laughs) interesting, and you really have to have your whole mind open to really understand. Understand it. So I give you kudos for breaking it down for me and for the listeners like this. It's not easy. Okay, so the next question, it might be the most common one that Canadians are asking. Why should Canadians even care about this upcoming U.S. election?
4: Well, given the outsized role that the U.S. plays in the world, both economically and strategically, everybody has to care about the U.S. election. I mean, what happens this year maybe more than most years, is going to affect us all. I mean, you look at, at at what Donald Trump has done over the past four years. I mean, domestically, Trump has pretty much handed over policymaking to the Republican donor class. I mean, he, he ran on a populist platform, but what has he delivered? He delivered tax cuts, which is a very traditional Republican thing to do. He has delivered deregulation. He has been deregulating all over the place. But that too is a very traditional Republican thing to do. It starts with Ronald Reagan and it never stops. In foreign policy, he has made enormous changes because he has been thumbing his nose at all of the multilateral institutions that the United States is party to and in fact often set up back after the end of the Second World War. And Trump has been this thumping nationalist, a kind of America-first policy, and that is tremendously important for world affairs. Biden, if he were to win, would undoubtedly return the United States to the role that it played you know, in, in most of the post-war era, you know, as, a, as, a, as a key participant in multilateral institutions and as a leader of the Western alliance. And that's going to make a huge difference to Canada and everybody else. Economically more difficult to say, because it 's not clear that Biden will completely retreat from trump 's economic nationalism i don 't think we 'll see tariff wars, but he has pledged to buy American to guarantee that certain products will be produced in the United States, and that could affect its relationship with its allies and with economic policy you know in, in, in the rest of the world. And, probably a step back from the globalization that has been on the agenda for decades.
6: And then finally, based on your knowledge, who do you predict will win? <laughs> Cliffhanger. Ah, well, listen,
4: I, I, uh, <laughs> I wish I knew. I'm not in the forecasting game. I mean, I follow the polls like everybody else, but I'm not an expert in polling, and I can't tell you how reliable they are this year. Are they better than they were in 2016? I just don't know. What I can tell you is that Biden has enjoyed a consistent lead throughout the campaign. Now, of course, Hillary Clinton was also ahead in the polls going into the 2016 election, and we all know how that turned out. Biden's lead is stronger than Clinton's, but it doesn't necessarily mean he will win. As I've said, turnout will be key. A close result opens up the prospect. This is something else to worry about of electoral chicanery on the part of President Trump and the Republicans. If it's a really close cliffhanger election decided days or weeks afterward by the mail-in votes, that gives the Republicans plenty of opportunity to challenge those votes and, in a replay of uh, of the Al uh, Gore-George Bush election, an attempt to stop the counting if their candidate is ahead. It could be chaotic beyond anything we've seen in
6: recent history. Oh, my goodness. All right. And then on that note, all eyes on November 3rd and possibly days and weeks after that date, uh, due to the mail-in votes that have to be counted, uh, Associate Professor in the Department of Politics at York University, uh, Stephen Newman, thank you so much for your insight uh, today. It has been a pleasure listening in, and uh, we will all have to see what happens with this 2020 U.S. election. (laughs) Thank you. Coming up, restaurants and snow pods.
2: This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region.
3: Follow us on Twitter
5: at 105.9 The Region. Ann Romer and more of The Feed after the break. This is 105.9 The Region.
2: This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Ann Romer. Restaurants really struggling these days to survive and find new ways to stay in business safely. Tina Cortez now with the snow pod option. Adam
0: Panov is the creator of the snow pod. Okay, so give us the rundown here, Adam. Where did this idea for this snow pod or patio dome or even igloo, where did it come from?
7: Well, I I wish I could say I was the creator of the heated bubble. I am not. Uh, However, about a month ago, I got to thinking about just how detrimental this upcoming winter is going to be for the hospitality industry. And if restaurant owners couldn't figure out a way to keep their customers warm and also separate them from one another um, at the same time, if they couldn't figure out a way to do that, then there would be a huge, huge issue. So, you know, I, 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 I ran by and I've experienced one of these heated up bubbles in the past. Uh, last year, there were a few restaurants that implemented them on a recreationally fun level. Um, just as something cool to do last year um, on their patios. And uh, I love the idea, but on top of that, you know, about a month ago when I was thinking about it, I realistically um, I came to the conclusion that there would be a necessity for these types of structures going forward into the winter of 2020 during the pandemic because, like I said, it's the only way to really isolate every bubble to their own structure while keeping them warm at the same time.
0: And how many people can fit in this pod?
7: Up to six people.
0: Okay. And so what would be the difference between sitting inside this pod and indoor dining per se?
7: Well,
3: first
0: of
7: all, I I need to always stress the importance. I want to always stress the importance of – attending one of our snow pods with your own bubble. The people you are exposed to regardless, that's who you should be going with. You shouldn't be going with friends of different bubbles and so on and so forth. So that's the first point I need to stress. The difference here is that you're not amongst other groups of patrons under one roof. So if we're indoor dining at a regular restaurant, they have six different tables, and that's six different tables of different social bubbles that are all exposed to the same indoor air. This isolates you from that, it essentially isolates you from that.
0: And are you getting interest from business owners, from those restaurants out there?
7: We are. We're, we're, we're very fortunate, and, and we are getting plenty of interest. And, you know, I, I've, been, I've been stressing this as much as possible. At the end of the day, we just really want to help out the hospitality industry. We know we're not going to be able to help everyone out. We know we're not going to be able to help out most people. But if there's a percentage out there that, has, that have patios, feel like they, they need to keep their dining services operational through the winter, then we are here to help in any way we can, and we want to make sure to get you guys equipped.
0: And how have these snow pods been tested? How will they be sanitized after every use?
7: So, first of all, as I said, structures like these have been implemented in Canada for many years now. So, with regards to how they've been tested, um, there have been some past experiences of, of these types of structures being in Canada. Um, Now, with regards to sanitization, first of all, we always strongly recommend that every restaurant follows the strongest measures suggested, sanitary measures suggested by their local municipalities. And in addition to that, we have partnered with a company called Sanitization by Design, who offers, um, they offer a product and a solution that have been health, uh, that have been health Canada authorized to eradicate COVID on all surfaces. So with regards to surface-level particles, we we offer a solution for that. Now, in the sense of uh, aerosol particles, particles that are left in the air, one, once again, we can never, never guarantee a risk-free environment. But all we do ask for is that our restaurant users please open up all ventilation points in between customer dining parties and please do so for as long as you could possibly can to help with ventilation throughout the structure. And hopefully, we can't guarantee that we'll eradicate everything, but hopefully it can
0: minimize it to an extent. So, Adam, what do the health officials think about this thing?
7: So, the, the, health, the, the health officials right now, it's we're, we're in kind of a holding pattern because initially... It was announced as approved, but there's been, I think, a few people started raising some concerns. So, as of right now, I think what's happening right now is they're going back, they're taking a closer look at these heated bubbles, and they just want to make sure that at the end of the day, we're implementing these types of structures on a very safe, as safe of a level as we as we can. Um, You know, I know infectious disease doctors in terms of the ventilation. Have raised, some, uh, have raised some concerns. Um, but once again, the point of our structure isn't to, it's not to keep it ventilated while one group is in there. It's to ensure and ask for every, every group that, that attends one of our bubbles, that comes and dines inside of one of our bubbles, is of the same household, is of the same bubble, social bubble. And the whole point of it is to mitigate the risk of transmission between different groups of patrons who are there all at once. That's the point of our bubble. It's that compromise of keeping people warm while also keeping people isolated at the same time from one another.
0: Can you share with us, what were some of the regulatory hurdles that led you to give the Premier a call directly?
7: So initially when I, when I had spoken, I spoke to a Toronto public health official because I wanted them to come and inspect one of our structures before we officially implemented it. Uh, simply because I wanted to make sure that it was COVID compliant. I wanted to do everything by the book and ensure that we were good to go on that front because at the end of the day, that is the most important thing, to be safe. Um, And the health official told me that they were – he didn't even let me speak another word. He told me they were prohibited. And when I asked him a medical reasoning for it, when I asked him all sorts of questions – Couldn't really give me much of an answer other than saying, This is the law, and if you don't like the law, try and get some lawyers to interpret it differently. So that was the answer I was given, and I I must say it wasn't a very thorough answer. Um, And that is when I made the decision to reach out to the province. I was very fortunate, and I was fortunate enough to be able to get the premier on the phone, and I presented the strongest case I could for how necessary and vital our pods were to helping some restaurant owners out there extend their patio season throughout the winter. He very much loved the idea, and he said he was going to present it to the health table and the Ministry of Labor. I know he had spoken with Mayor Tory, and everyone is interested in the idea. It's just all about making sure once we are given the go-ahead that we are doing so in a way that is is safe and sound, as, as safe as can be, I will say.
0: Absolutely, and keep us posted on what happens on that front. So why do you think that restaurants can and should be able to afford this financially? Like, what is the cost for one of these domes?
7: So one of our domes retails for $1,800 plus HST.
0: However, where we're
7: differentiating ourselves from anyone else is that we know restaurant owners are really hurting right now. So we wanted to offer up a lease-to-own program as well. You could purchase it up front, or you can lease it over six, 12, or 24-month monthly payments. And hopefully, if some owners feel like that might help them a little bit better, then we are more than happy to offer that to them.
0: You know, I think in this day and age, we have to embrace all of these new ideas and and check it out thoroughly. So I'm glad that everyone around the health table is going to take a close look at this. If our listeners want to check out a snow pod for themselves, where can they go?
7: They can go to www.snowpods.ca.
0: Adam, thank you for joining us on the feed.
7: Thank you so much. I appreciate
3: it.
2: If you missed any part of our show, go to 1059theregion.com or follow us on Twitter at 1059theregion. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.